our job as people who want to advance Bitcoin is to bring Bitcoin in a form factor that will fit with people's lives rather than ask people to adapt their lives to fit with the form factor of Bitcoin. That will get further faster by trying to build tools that meet people where they are than we will by trying to proselytize the philosophy that brought us to Bitcoin. Yeah, that's usually the right approach to anything. Adapt to the reality around you instead of trying to change reality to your will. I mean, that's a deep philosophical insight that I think most people would benefit from having. It's better to sail with the wind than to try to sail against it, even though sailing against it is fun sometimes. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, the Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Sunofin. Today, we welcome Tyler Odin, Senior Product Director at Blockstream, to discuss the Liquid Network. In this episode, we talk a lot about technology, starting with internet protocols, privacy, self-custody, cloud computing, then moving on to learning about Liquid and what makes this solution unique and trustworthy. Our discussion then takes a philosophical turn as we touch on topics such as the Bitcoin ethos, self-sovereignty, and the subjectivity of hyper-Bitcoinization. Today's episode definitely has a bit of everything and we really enjoyed it. Before we jump in, I'll quickly cover how you can support the show. First, you can send us a boost or stream us some sats using a value for value podcasting app such as Fountain. If you're listening to the show as a podcast, check it out on Fountain. You can earn sats from listening and you can support us and all your other favorite shows. You can also support us on Geyser with Bitcoin or on Patreon if you want to get rid of your dirty fiat. All our links are in the description. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode and subscribe to the channel. Even if you're just listening as a podcast, head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe to us there. It would be a big help. And finally, we want to thank today's sponsors. Amber App, Wasabi Wallet, Orange Pill App, The Bitcoin Way, and Geyser. All their information is in the description. We'll be talking a bit more about them later. And now, without further ado, here is Tyler Odin on The Freedom Footprint Show. Tyler, welcome to The Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. Can you uh, can you start off with, because we, we got connected through some of our mutual uh, connections in Blockstream, and we've had Adam back on the show, and uh, we basically, we wanted someone else to talk to about uh, the world of Liquid, and that's how your name came up. So can you tell us about yourself, give us an introduction to uh, yourself, and uh, maybe work a little bit about Bitcoin in there? Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, so... My name is Tyler Odin. I'm a senior product director at uh, Blockstream. And I've been at Blockstream, actually, I'm this week going to be coming up on my one-year anniversary. So I can no longer claim I'm new around here, but I'm still relatively new in the grand scheme of things. Uh, I lead a product for what we call platforms. So that's all the things that are built on top of Bitcoin at Blockstream. So Liquid and Lightning are the sort of two largest and most obvious examples of that. I also work with the research team to try and help the ideas that they come up with sort of find a path to our, our lines of business. So that's kind of where I sit in the Blockstream world. Uh, I've been a product manager in the tech industry for something like a decade and a half. Details start to fade after that time, you know. Uh, I spent the first roughly decade at Google, uh, where I worked on uh, the Chrome browser. And I did a whole bunch of different things on the Chrome browser. So if you if you are on the Chrome browser, chances are you clicked on something that I had an argument with someone about at some point during my time there. It was a great, great time. I, I uh, really loved it. And the thing that I loved about working on Chrome was that it was a huge body of incredibly intelligent open source creators who believed that doing the right open source work could really materially improve the world. 
that was something that united the Chrome team was that they were really evangelists for the power of the web and for the importance of information processing tools for humanity. And that's not super common. Like not a lot of projects have that sort of deep mission-driven ethos. And that was something that really drew me to uh, Bitcoin. And then specifically to Blockstream, it has that same kind of sense of the right open source project can really be a lever that shoves the world into a better future. The thought that comes to my mind instantly when you say that is like, is uh, is that still the case with Chrome development or Google products in general? Or uh, are they moving in a slightly different direction these days? Well, what I always like to tell people is that the the Google when I was there was beautiful, but it was never sustainable. It was always this sort of like hot, burning pile of money that a, that a couple of grad students discovered. And then they built a little nerd paradise for a while. And it was amazing. I think it made the world a better place. I was super proud to be a part of it. But I don't think there's anything that one should cast shade on the Google of the present day because it isn't necessarily the Google of that era. Like that was always going to be a temporary sort of burst of energy that couldn't last forever. It lasted way longer than I ever would have thought. I still think Chrome is an amazing browser. I still use it myself. Um, I still recommend it to my friends and family. I do think that the Chrome of today is more aligned with Google than it was in my era. The Chrome of my era was almost hostile to Google. It was not uncommon for me to bring proposals to engineers on the Chrome team and for them to say something to the effect of, you only want that because it's good for Google, not because it's good for users. We shouldn't do it. And sometimes they were right and we wouldn't do it. And sometimes there was actually some reason that it actually did make sense for users and we would do it. But the central driving force behind every decision really was this purest pro-user mentality, the same kind of mentality that drives Bitcoin core contributors. And... I don't know if I could swear if that's still true today. I don't want to say it's not, but some of the recent launches I'm not as happy with. There's more integration with the ads team than I would like. But I still think it's an amazing browser. I still think it's the most secure browser. I still think it's a really, really incredible tool. I also think building a browser is kind of like the equivalent of uh, doing an Apollo moon landing. Like it's, it's an incredibly vast undertaking. People really underestimate what it takes to build a browser and how many people have to do how many things for it to be safe and functional. And like, I don't think there's going to be very many more browsers built. I suspect that in the future, everything that we use to browse will descend in an evolutionary sense from Chromium because it's just such an enormous undertaking to replace it that I think it will make much more sense to fork and evolve it than it will be to start from scratch. So would you say that you moved from the company uh, who uh, had don't be evil as their slogan to the protocol who has can't be evil baked in. I definitely think there's a moral through line between what drew me to working at Google and working on Chrome and what draws me now to working on Bitcoin. And yeah, I, I, I really believe that the most valuable, most positive outcomes for everyone are at the sort of cooperative end of the prisoner's dilemma. That sort of the great tragedy of humanity is the prisoner's dilemma and that finding a way out of the prisoner's dilemma is sort of the most morally good thing one can do. And that's what I think is so beautiful about Bitcoin is that it is a ladder that allows us to climb out of the, the bad pit of incentives and into a more cooperative place. And that I think is like a tremendously powerful and good thing. And it is very much akin to what I see as beautiful about the internet and the web in the first place. Yeah. Beautifully put. Um, yeah, I, I, I love Chrome or I, I used to love Chrome. I love it less now than I used to, 
but I, I fiddled around with Chromebooks when they were for, first launched. Uh, and so that I was first fun. joined Chrome on the Chrome OS team. And if you were messing around with Chromebooks at launch, I was the Google Cloud Print PM. So the reason that Cloudbooks could print when they launched, or Chromebooks rather, could print when they launched, is because I fought to make that a functional uh, part of the system, which was a really weird one foot in, you know, ancient tech world of printers <laughs> and the other in like the future of Chromebooks at the moment when they were first launching. It was very vertigo inducing at times. We would have these meetings with printing companies. Printer companies would have every meeting. They would start by saying who they were, what their job was, and how long they had been in the printing industry. So they'd be like, I'm Bill. I'm head of East Coast, and I've been in the printing industry for 45 years. And then it would get to me, and I'd be like, I'm Tyler. I'm at Google. I've been in printing for six months now, if you round up. So it was a very entertaining moment in time. Sure sounds like it. Uh, I, one of the most fascinating things with the Chromebooks in the beginning, uh, at least, I don't know how it works now, but it's basically just a Linux computer and you could easily convert it to one by, by just removing Chrome from it. And then you got a, a very cheap, uh, fully functional Linux computer. Uh, so that was really cool. Yeah, I, I think... Chromebooks were beautiful. I wish that they had gotten more traction than they did. You know, it's easy to play counterfactual games, but uh, the the architecture and the reasons that they had for being built that way, I thought were really nice. And they're still actually very successful in, uh, say, education spheres, for example, where hardware cost is a really important factor in in what you're choosing. Yeah, I, I, this is this is so interesting. Like the when they first came out, I really liked the idea of. Uh, cloud storage and uh, doing everything on the web and uh, the, having no need for personal storage, but just why don't we just collaborate and use everything. And that is until the realization, of course, that there is no cloud, there's just someone else's computer, <laughs> uh, which then s sort of was one of the contributing factors that led me to Bitcoin at some point. Uh, and yeah. now, like like every other Bitcoiner, I prefer to keep stuff on my own computer and uh, have it not touch the internet as much as possible. <laughs> so, uh, so there's that. So what are your thoughts on that? Like, uh, how, how do you see the internet evolving in the future in terms of like what you do online? And, uh, do you see a future for stuff like start nines, for instance, if you know those? I'm not start nine specifically, but I do have lots of thoughts about the sort of role of cloud computing for a sovereign individual, right? For someone who's actually making these decisions in a sort of deliberate and strategic way. And I think it there's an initial realization that, that most people don't start with and then at some point they hit where they're like, oh my God, this is just someone else's computer. They may be able to look at my stuff. They might turn their computer off and then my stuff is gone. Like the realization that the cloud is just someone else's computer is like an alarming one. And I think the natural reaction to it is to immediately swing back 100% the other direction and be like, I'm going to store everything locally. I'm going to not trust anyone. And I'm going to keep everything in sort of like a complete self custody of data, if you will. And I think that's an understandable impulse. But I also think that's swinging too far in the other direction. So my feeling is you should have a sense of what data is sensitive that you don't want other people to know, and what data is precious that you really need to make sure isn't lost. And then you should decide what your data storage strategy is on the basis of what that data looks like. So for example, there's data that's extremely precious, but isn't very secret. That 
you know, might, for example, be like your photos of, of uh, your family. You might not be super worried about Google being aware that you have photos, but you might be really worried about losing your family memories. In that case, I think it would be foolish to have all of your photos stored exclusively on your own personal hard drives because you're exposing yourself to loss risk. And that's much more serious in the case of like family photos than like the risk of exposure. So I would personally, in the case of family uh, photos, want them, and I do keep it this way, I keep a local storage copy and I also keep it in Google Photos. What data fits into which part of that Venn diagram is going to differ for individual people. But I think for most people, there is data that you should have locally only, data that you should have locally and on a cloud, and data that you should only have on a cloud. The data that you should only have on a cloud is stuff that's like convenience data, that's like, oh, it's not a big deal if it's lost and it's not a big deal if it's uh, being managed by another company. And then there's also data where you would not want the company to have visibility into it, but you might not be bothered by the concept that they're aware that they're storing data on your behalf, right? So you like encrypt the file and then store that encrypted file on Dropbox. That then at that point just becomes a, a recovery route for your data for you. It's not actually giving Dropbox any control. So like, I think the real truth, the real strategy is quite complicated and nuanced and difficult to convey. And so most people start in a state of blissful ignorance. I store the file and I don't think about it. And then at one point they have a, an unfortunate realization. They're like, oh my God, that file exists somewhere and that has consequences. And then after that, you slowly grow into a mature and complicated and individualistic strategy it doesn't summarize well in a tweet or in a, in a soundbite. And so the conversation tends to get more diffuse about what the right thing to do is once you get to that level of nuance. But that's how I think about it. So I think it's totally appropriate for people to have cloud storage and to use it, sometimes encrypted, sometimes not, depending on the use case. But then they should also have local storage. They should understand what it means to store data locally. They should have a body of data that they consider to be too important to trust to someone else. I think private keys for the storage of crypto is an obvious example of that category of data, right? You really don't want to lose it and you really don't want to trust anyone else with it. So you do need to have responsibility for storing it yourself. But most adults today aren't ready for that responsibility. Like that's a new level of responsibility that we as a society have not yet fully grappled with. And I think a lot of the people who are early in that journey are uh, over applying the tech. Right. They're sort of, they sort of they realize that this is a solution to a problem that's very scary, that looms very large. And then they sort of are like they're a person with a hammer and they, they want to nail everything. Yeah. So about photos, though, like, um, are, aren't you scared of uh, uh, or paranoid about uh, surveillance and uh, AIs being able to uh, profile people? Uh, for instance, I, I, um, I, I'm, I mean, I'm all over the Internet, so I'm fucked. But but uh, my children, I, I I don't post photos of my of my children online, and I have that as a like personal policy. I I, I want them to be able to choose for for themselves in the future, uh, to as large an extent as possible. Yeah, and, and with any security conversation, you have to have a threat vector and you have to have a use case, right? And you can't talk about security in a meaningful way unless you're balancing the threat vector against the use case. So, for example, I think if you're very worried about the threat vector of, uh, you know, so like AI surveillance of your information in a generalized sense, it can be totally reasonable to encrypt those photos before you put them in an online storage. Thing. I still think you would want to avoid losing it. And so I still think storing encrypted copies of it in a otherwise untrusted environment could still be a net positive. I also think there's like a lot of differences between like old photos that I scanned of my grandparents and a recent snapshot of my child that's geotagged. Right. Like the, the, we can talk about family photos and it can encompass like a radically different set of information that you're needing to secure or preserve. And the, 
the details get really complicated really quickly. My thought is just that like, I think every adult should have the capacity to store things entirely themselves. Like if you're a responsible adult, you need to have the capacity to store data on your own behalf reliably because there are things that you need to do that with. But what data you should store that way, I think a lot of people are overly prescriptive about that. That tends to be way more of a specific set of values and a specific set of trade-offs that people have to decide for themselves. The part that I can recommend with confidence is you should be doing some self-custody of your own data. If you don't self-custody your own data, you haven't really navigated that trade-off. Once you've self-custodied something, eh, now we're going to have an interesting, fun, hour-long conversation about the details, and like it's very hard to offer one-size-fits-all advice. You know, the, oh, this this is opening up so many um, thought vectors <laughs> or um, subcaverns of some sort of rabbit hole here, like uh, not your keys, not your coins, uh, as the saying goes. Is there a parallel between that and like not your uh, not your Bitcoin, not your information? Like <laughs> if it's if it's not the real thing, is it really yours? <laughs> the parallel that I would draw is private keys are one of the bodies of data that you have to decide how you're going to store. And that's a body of data that I think you, you really should be self-custodying. I really don't see a way to meaningfully handle that data that doesn't involve truly self-custodying it for yourself. You need to have a private key. You need to have the capacity to secure that private key by yourself. A commonly implied conclusion from that that I don't necessarily agree with is that you need to put all of your wealth behind that private key. My feeling is you absolutely should have the capacity to self-custody your wealth and some of your wealth should be self-custody. And then probably some of your wealth shouldn't be. Probably some of it should be in somewhere convenient in the same way that you might like have some money in store credit at a store you did a return for, or you might buy some, you know, tokens at an arcade, like you should treat the money that's being held by someone else as not entirely real and therefore not entirely trusted. But there's a lot of convenience that is opened up by being willing to do that with small sums. And I think the notion that that we should put a hundred percent of our wealth behind self-secured private keys is overly prescriptive in the same way that I think it's overly prescriptive to say you should be self-custodying literally all of your data. Like you should be making a sophisticated and nuanced decision about what it makes sense to self-custody and what it makes sense to keep convenient in a less secure way. You should keep most of your wealth in a secure vault-like experience. And then you should have a small amount of your wealth in a convenient wallet-like experience. And that same principle applies across a broader spectrum, right? In the same way that it's appropriate to keep some in cold storage and some in hot storage, I think it's actually reasonable to keep some of your wealth in applications that you use, that it's just convenient and cheap to use that way. And you should be making a nuanced strategic decision about what those different solutions offer. Yeah. Um, the, the question I really want to ask is about, you know, centralization of, uh, say, social media platforms and uh, internet protocols in general, like uh, email, for instance. A lot of people have a, a Gmail account, and that's their only email address. Uh, and a lot of things tend to... Uh, uh, funnel towards centralized solutions. So uh, is the way out of that to uh, include zaps and uh, uh, paywalls, uh, Bitcoin paywalls everywhere, so so that you're uh, it's so that you know that the inform the information 
you handle is more yours because there's a Bitcoin uh, aspect of it. It's it's uh, tied to Bitcoin in some way, or shape, or form. Like, um, uh, do you see like the internet evolving, like forking and evolving into different di- directions here with Noster and stuff on the on on one hand uh, end and and uh, big. Um, Google, Facebook, Amazon stuff happening on the other end? Or how how do you see that unfolding? Yeah, I think there's a lot of analogies to be drawn. And the the way that I think about it is, it is incumbent on those of us who understand and value decentralization to improve the competitive strength of sovereign tools. We should make them as cheap as possible. We should make them as easy to use as possible. We should make them as expressive and powerful as possible. That applies to Bitcoin wallets, that applies to Nostra clients, that applies to anything where you want, uh, email clients, anything where you want to create a sort of more decentralized future. But as you're doing that, we should all be realistic about the idea that people's preferences, like human preferences, exist along a spectrum. And those of us who are dedicated to advancing the cause of decentralization care more about it than the people who don't. And so we should expect that as we improve the competitive strength of decentralization offers, it will attract people at the margins, right? And the more people we get, the more people will become fully sovereign and the harder the centralized services will have to work to compete, to offer a a compelling enough solution to keep people in the fold. But in my estimation, I do not think we will arrive at a world where centralized services are completely pushed off the spectrum. So to use Nostra as an example, if we make for a really, really powerful, sophisticated, intelligent, clever Nostra-based social experience, I think it will attract a lot of people. But I also think it will inevitably have some amount of friction introduced by the fact that it is a decentralized experience. There will, there will just be polish that will not be present that could have been present in a centralized experience. And there will be some people who prefer convenience and polish such that they are not willing to tolerate even a small amount of friction. What's important is that the more competitively compelling the decentralized offer is, the more the centralized solution has to accommodate in order to stay relevant, right? So if there's no competitive offering or if the competitive offering is very weak or or if only a really extreme subset of people can take advantage of the tool, if it's too complicated to use or if it's too expensive or if it has other drawbacks, then it won't put much pressure, right? Noster today isn't putting a lot of pressure on Twitter yet. And the reason for that is because Nostr has so many points of friction as an experience that it's not yet really sucking users away from Twitter. But if you imagine like 10x, 100x the quality of Nostr, it will certainly start to draw more people in than it does today. It probably won't capture every single Twitter user. A lot of Twitter users are probably very complacent in their approach to the product. They're probably not easily captured. But if Twitter's really worried about the like 10, 20, 30% of users that are transitioning, they're going to change their feature set to more closely match the feature set that's drawing them their users away. And the end result will be a world which is behaving more like the decentralized tools, even though not every single person will move to a decentralized tool. So to use the email client example, if Google starts doing something shady with Gmail and thus causes the popularization of like a ProtonMail or like a, a truly sovereign client of some kind, then that will in turn cause Google to be like, oh, we're losing a bunch of users and we really like having those users. Gmail is incredibly useful for keeping people signed into search. Let's just make Gmail encrypted and that way people will still use it to sign into search. And like, that's obviously a very simplified example. I don't think it would play out quite that cleanly, but that's the idea is that by strengthening the decentralized tools, you are increasing the pressure on the centralized tools. 
not because every single individual human will become self-sovereign. Most of them are going to find that very intimidating, even in a world where we've really polished it. But by making it as easy as possible, we will put as much pressure as possible on the tools that remain to be user-friendly and to mimic the pro-user behaviors of a truly sovereign tool. So it's a market-based solution, not, not a, a unilateral conquering, if you will. So uh, th there's a parallel here between society at large and, and nation states and democracies, because I think the same thing is playing out there. Like the more people that become truly self-sovereign and fully-fledged Bitcoiners and that, that choose to move to whatever jurisdiction treats them best, they put the same kind of pressure on, uh, on governments to, to, uh, to stop being bad to them, uh, or at least be less bad to them. And, and, uh, so, so it, it, it's, uh, it turns into a competition for brain power between nation states. Yeah. And I think you see kind of a similar dynamic happening with the relative freedom of America compared to many other ju jurisdictions around the world. That's part of why we have the sort of influx of, of high talent immigration is because there is this perception that, that high talent, highly successful, highly motivated people desire to be operating in America because it has that sort of pro, uh, pro citizen posture relative to many other governments. And I think that does put pressure on those governments, even if they don't necessarily become fully open democracies, to remove the most acute pressures on their population in order to reduce the competitive threat from America, just existing as a more free state. And like, I think Bitcoin is doing that same thing to America. It's sort of putting pressure on a bunch of these financial privacy restrictions that we have introduced that like are kind of anti-American, but existed for quite a while without a lot of examination, but the existence now of a tool that doesn't comply with those regulations that just says like, what if there was a free money is forcing competitive pressures into American jurisprudence that I think like America will become more free because the embarrassing example of Bitcoin is going to point out how free we aren't in a way that if we didn't have Bitcoin to compare against, it would be easier to maintain really, in my opinion, draconic banking surveillance laws. Yeah, and sooner or later, people are going to try to cross the border the other way, like they're going to Mexico and not from Mexico, like not into the U.S., but out of it. <laughs> because I think the, the competition um, between various polities is is pro-human, right? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's the ability to move and, and to compete. And that's what I'm excited about about Bitcoin is it's sort of a neutral polity. Like anyone can migrate their wealth to Bitcoin and no one can prevent the Bitcoin polity from enforcing freedom in the way that it does. What what's that saying? Like if if uh, goods and services don't cross borders, soldiers will, and it's the same. Yeah, uh, totally. It's on the same lines as uh, markets unite, politics divide. Uh, so and that's that's true on a on a national scale as well as on in between big conglomerates and companies and corporations. Okay, we have some big news. We have a new lead sponsor, Amber App. They're the number one exchange in the Southern Hemisphere. They're rated for the best customer service around, and their global launch is coming. But the reason we're partnering with Amber App is because of the people. If you haven't listened to our episode with Izzy, CEO of Amber App, you really should go check it out. You'll see why it made perfect sense to partner with Izzy and Amber App. That's all I'll say for now. You really have to check it out for yourself. They have loads of great features coming that we're excited to share with you when the time comes. But for now, just check out the episode, check out their website, amper.app. You can see for yourself why we're thrilled to bring Amber App on as our lead sponsor and partner. So go check it out.
Next up, Wasabi Wallet, the privacy by default, open source, non-custodial Bitcoin wallet with CoinJoin built in. It's the easy to use, comprehensive, affordable way to make your coins private. And the best part is they've been making huge improvements to the app. They're really focusing on the user experience, adding advanced features for power users. They just keep getting better. You send your coins to your Wasabi wallet and they get combined with loads of other coins using the Wabi Sabi protocol. So they're private on the other end. Your tracks are covered so you can work on expanding your freedom footprint without worrying about your privacy. So check out wasabiwallet.io and download Wasabi today. All right, on to uh, what we were <laughs> supposed to talk about. Like, uh, so, so uh, how do we shoehorn liquid into this and uh, what you're working on, on uh, uh, for Blockstream? I, uh, just give our listeners the TLDR on, uh, on liquid. We, we got Adam's version the, the, and we'd love to have Adam back. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Adam's great because he gives you the like thousand year, thousand foot view, right? Like the the distant future of of uh, what we're all building towards. I can give you a little bit more of the view on the ground today. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Because I I think a lot of people, most people don't know what liquid is, and most people who think they know what liquid is don't really know the difference between liquid and some other bullshit sidechain. Like so, so can you um, can you give us the the TLDR on on Liquid, please? Totally, totally. Yeah. So your uh, TLDR. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Explain like you're fifteen ish, something like that. <laughs> um, so Liquid is a sidechain built on Bitcoin. Uh, it is intended to use as its base currency within the network a token which is pegged to Bitcoin. So you can peg your Bitcoin into Liquid. You will receive the same amount of LBTC that you pegged in. And then you can do transactions and participate in smart contracts, do whatever within the Liquid economy. And at some point later, turn your uh, LBTC tokens in and withdraw Bitcoin from the, the backing supply that powers the network. And then Liquid itself, you can think of it in a lot of different ways, which is part of why I think it's not easily conceptualized and why many people are totally certain what it is. When we launched and the sort of early communication described Liquid as a sort of tool for letting your Bitcoin do extra things. So it supports confidential transactions, which means you can trade without anybody seeing your transactions, which you can't do on the network. It also supports, you can issue assets on it so you can trade against those assets. Um, it supports uh, covenants, uh, which are... What, a, what, do you, what do you mean issue assets on it? How how are those assets different from your regular uh, brick and mortar shitcoin? Well, you could issue a shitcoin on Liquid if you were so inclined, and in fact, you know, there's enough confidentiality on the network that I assume people probably yeah, but have. I mean, what, what do you mean asset? How do you issue an asset? Yeah, so in a literal sense, what you can do is you can create a token, and then you can prove to anyone who is interested in your token the total supply of your token. And that's interesting because it allows you to create a cap table and then to allow your cap table to trade and to, to transact in your equity or your, your token, whatever it represents, without needing them to disclose any of their privacy to other participants or to the rest of the network. So a simple example would be like, I'm founding a company, I'm going to issue shares in my company, I'm going to issue those shares as tokens. When my uh, investors receive those tokens, they can use them as collateral, they can sell them easily, they can transact in them privately. So it gives you the sort of advantages that you can get from tokenization, fast settlement times, surety, the ability to do peer-to-peer -peer transactions trustlessly uh, around whatever thing you're trying to wrap 
in a, in a token asset. So as a specific concrete example, there's a company called Mafil in Mexico. And you're, you're smiling, I'm assuming, because you must have heard this example. Yeah, and we miss Samson. Yeah, and we, we, we thought you said Milfield, which was uh, mispronounced, but yeah. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. Mafil. So what Mafil is doing is they're issuing promissory notes. It's a form of lending in Mexico. And the specific form factor of the promissory note has sort of very elevated treatment in Mexican bankruptcy law. So it's a very high quality form of debt. Um, but it's, it's local to Mexico, which restricts the total amount of liquidity that's available. So what Mifil does is they make these loans, they take these loans, they tokenize them, and then they give the tokens to global developers, or sorry, global liquidity providers. And then the global liquidity providers give them more money, and then they use that money to make more loans to generate more promissory notes. So the way to think about it is the local market of promissory notes in Mexico is benefiting because it has access to global liquidity. And the global liquidity market is benefiting because they can actually use cryptographic proof to assure supply and settlement and no rehypothecation of the debt in question. So they can take this token and then they can use it as pristine collateral, like the perfect possible collateral of that particular you know, asset type. And then because it is so high quality uh, collateral, they can get better lending terms, which allows them to access more money, which allows them to expand their business. So in my mind, in a generalized sense, there are lots and lots of isolated little financial markets in the world, municipal bond markets, local promissory notes, uh, insurance contracts, bills of laden for shipping. There's all these places where there are these local financial markets where it's difficult to access global liquidity because you need to have some kind of a trust relationship with the participants in those markets in order to, to be able to do that. And what Liquid allows you to do is to isolate the trust components of that relationship, tokenize them so that you can make some parts of that system operate totally trustlessly. It's not the whole end-to-end -end system isn't trustless because there's still someone who represents the bridge between the financial asset and the token. But that's one specific link and it allows you to... Uh, remove all of the trust relationships between your counterparty and the trade, whoever it is you might want to be making a loan to or borrowing against, anybody who's, uh, you know, uh, exchange you want to use. There's like many, many trustless tools that you can use in a trustless way by reducing down the, the trust to just one single bridge that connects the financial asset to the token. Um, and then Liquid is a network that allows all of these tokenized assets to interoperate in sort of very efficient and effective ways. And in particular, one of the things that I think is really cool about the Liquid Network is that it has the ability for tokens to embed their own enforcement logic into the token itself. And the reason that I think that's cool, I mean, it's that's uh, not a technical description, that's a conceptual description. What actually happens is a multi-signature on the transaction. But, but the conceptual idea is that tokens can manage their own enforcement of whatever rules they deem appropriate for their particular definition. And then all the tokens can interoperate with full knowledge that they are in compliance with their own rules without any knowledge about what compliance means for any of the other assets or any of the other participants. So that means that all the different companies in the world can all interoperate on a common network without needing to have common agreement about what the rules should be. And that's what I think is really powerful about Liquid is it lets you have these base guarantees. Supplies are knowable. Transactions are final. Everything's private. You can prove who owns something. And those guarantees are managed by the network. And then whatever other rules you want to impose for whatever other economic games you want to play are at the discretion of the participants. That sounds like the 
perfect pitch for a shitcoin, but with the crucial difference that it's not a shitcoin because it's built on Bitcoin and it's provable that you can flip it back. I don't think all financial assets are shitcoins. I think the key element of shitcoin is that it has no corresponding thing but itself. Right. Like the idea behind a shitcoin is that there is just this speculation in the token as useful as a token. And what Liquid is saying is like what we have is a platform to allow tokens to do interesting things with each other. We don't, and the platform doesn't know anything about the nature of the token. So it might be valuable or it might be valueless. That's up to the participants to decide how they view it. But what we can do is we can ensure the behavior of the tokens and ensure the validity of the network and of the economy. And then that allows for both. I mean, you know, to be frank, there are NFTs on Liquid. So like there are people who are doing very speculative or very sort of subjective things. And then there's also people who are doing like multi-million dollar cross-border banking to banking transactions. And Liquid itself is kind of indifferent. It's It's just about guaranteeing the raw rules of the network, right? The code is trustworthy. What you choose to track and value, we can't tell you, but we can tell you that it tracks the way you think, if that makes sense. Oh. Yeah, it makes sense. The, the the thing is though, when whenever what happens whenever there's a legal dispute, can you actually prove that you own these things, or like uh, when there's uh, and will a court buy that? Is there a benefit to this from a legal perspective as opposed to the uh, to to traditional systems, or does it just complicate things even more because the people in the court doesn't know jack shit about? Uh, yeah, I mean, anytime you're doing something novel, you're you're taking them out a, a burden of explanation when you have to defend it legally. So I wouldn't be naive about that. There's this is novel behavior. It will probably require some conversations, but I do think it will actually once understanding propagates be really popular with the sort of legal authorities of the world because you can make these very very firm yeah. promises about what is and is not true in the system. So on Liquid, by default, all of your transactions are confidential. So nobody can know anything except that you had a transaction. They can't know what you transacted in. They can't know what quantities. They don't know what you own on the network. But you can, at your discretion, prove that you own a specific asset or a specific quantity of a specific asset. Or you can unblind a specific transaction or a specific set of transactions to an auditor or a regulator or to any sort of authority figure that you wanted to disclose through. And the assets themselves have knowledge of their own cap table. So it is entirely, and all of these things can be proven in a cryptographic sense. So you can selectively reveal yourself to whatever, yep. whoever. And wants that selective reveal would have a degree of certainty that traditional auditing systems couldn't offer, right? Like you would be able to say, this is my record and I can provably could not have altered this record. Like the enforcement of the validity of this record is out of my hands. But I guess it's like in Bitcoin, you can prove that you have Bitcoin, but you can't prove that you don't have Bitcoin. <laughs> like, there's no way for the court to know that you don't have more than you claim that you have. Yeah, I mean, you could provably destroy it, much like Bitcoin. But yeah, it's tough. It's tough to make it still real, but prove that you're not the person on the other end, unless you know who the person on the other end is, and then they prove it. Right? Yeah, but I mean, uh, you can still like you can have an amount of Bitcoin, but you can still always have more, and there's no way for any third party to ever know that you have that if if you did your homework properly. <laughs> yes, that's true, and, and it's certainly the intention of Liquid that if you would like part of your behavior to be invisible to everyone that like it is it is intended to allow you to preserve privacy in a strong way 
So if you want to have sort of like part of your portfolio trackable and part untrackable, like that's fully functional. The network allows you to do unblinded transactions if you want to. And there are some cases where that's useful to do for like uh, corner cases, not things that I think are normal for most users most of the time. But it is possible to do in the network if you have desire to create a, a fully unblinded transaction that's, that's just public. Okay, so how does this work on a technical level? Uh, explain it like I'm 21 or something. Like, uh, how how does this peg to Bitcoin uh, actually work? So uh, you deposit the Bitcoin from uh, the Bitcoin network to an address that is managed by uh, an 11 of 15 multi-sig controlled by the Liquid Federation. So the Liquid Federation is a group of, I think it's around 60 companies right now. It's something on that order of magnitude. And then among those 60 companies, there are 15 of them that operate what we call validators. The validators are in charge of proposing and then confirming the blocks. The blocks happen every minute. So you have finality every two minutes. Um, when you are or finality within the Liquid Network, obviously the Bitcoin Network still has its 10-minute cycle. Um, the When you deposit the Bitcoin after a sort of suitable locking period, then on the liquid network, you will be able to, with a, a secret that you receive, withdraw liquid Bitcoin. The liquid Bitcoin token is created when you do the peg in. And then when you peg back out again on the other end, the liquid Bitcoin token is destroyed. So at any given time, the liquid Bitcoin supply represents the total amount of Bitcoin that have been deposited by someone who wanted to peg it. You can do this directly yourself. Like you could just decide to do this unilaterally. There's also a number of the Bitcoin or the Liquid Federation members that offer this as a service. Either will offer to peg in for you or offer to just let you uh, withdraw onto, onto Liquid. Excellent. So, so if I understood Adam correctly when we interviewed him, uh, there's uh, the the point of this whole the Liquid Federation and removing the thing from. Uh, from the as far as possible from Bitcoin while still pegging it to Bitcoin is to not mess with the incentives of the miners, because technically, if you had a sidechain, if it was merged mined or something, something like that, it would screw up the incentives of the uh, Bitcoin miners. What are your thoughts? Yeah, on that? our our goal. I mean, like I said, Liquid is many things at the same time, which does make it complicated to reason about. One of the things that we intend Liquid to be is a kind of. Uh, real money test bed for things that we might eventually imagine graduating into the Bitcoin network. So it's not that we necessarily assume that everything done on Liquid ought to be done on Bitcoin, but we do intend Liquid to be close enough to Bitcoin to continue to be useful as a place to learn about some of these technologies. So uh, simplicity is a great example of that. And in the happy long term, I would love for a world where simplicity graduates to Bitcoin. I don't know if we'll get there and we're a long way from it, but we do want to make sure that as we're developing, it's, it's part of the possible space. Um, and part of the goals with Liquid is to keep it close enough to Bitcoin that features that are especially useful and especially well vetted could potentially be drafted up into the majors. Um, we also wanted to make sure that it was as user controlled as was possible to do while still achieving the kind of scalability and flexibility things that we wanted to achieve for Liquid. So Liquid is further down the spectrum than Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is on the far extreme end of, of as decentralized as you could imagine a system being. And then Liquid compromises on that absolute decentralization in exchange for a great deal of flexibility and scalability and some cool new bells and whistles that we hope eventually will graduate to Bitcoin and won't be a competitive feature like confidential transactions or simplicity or something. Um, so 
that's kind of the idea is we wanted as much as possible to be deep on the decentralization end of the spectrum and to maintain the ability for things that are especially useful to graduate back into the full experience, the, the Bitcoin itself. But in the meantime, to take advantage of the uh, greater degree of, of safety for or changing things and for or growing. All right, and the 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 best way to get your hands on a on a bunch of liquid tokens is uh, to uh, use, I, I guess, Blockstream Jade and uh, Blockstream Green. Still, is the, is that the case? Is that a- I do think that the Blockstream uh, Jade and Green is the best way to uh, custody and to, and to store both liquid Bitcoin and then whatever assets on the liquid network that you might potentially want to use. Like for example, the Blockstream Mining Note is a token on the Bitcoin or on the liquid network, so you could potentially be interested in investing any of the uh, assets. And then I would also recommend using Green and and Jade to store those things. The show is also sponsored by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network where you can stack friends who stack sats. You can connect with your favorite Bitcoiners on the app, make local connections, and even connect with Bitcoiners around the world. You can see what's going on in your area and organize and attend local events. I've been to multiple events organized on Orange Pill App, and they brought Bitcoiners together from all over. And now, with group chat, it's easier than ever to stay in touch with all your Bitcoin friends. The best part is, you know it's high signal. There's no spam on Orange Pill app because everyone pays to be there. So download Orange Pill app on Apple or Android and start building your local network of Bitcoiners. Next up, the Bitcoin way. Their mission is to onboard, educate, and remove barriers to taking self-custody of your Bitcoin. They cover everything from cold wallets to nodes, no KYC Bitcoin purchases, inheritance planning, payments, and more. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or you're an experienced Bitcoiner looking to expand your freedom footprint, or you know someone who this sounds perfect for, the Bitcoin Way has something for you. They have a skilled team, well-versed in the Bitcoin space, and their goal is to make all the complexities of Bitcoin as straightforward as possible for everyone. And the best part is you can get started with a free 30-minute call with their team. Go to thebitcoinway.com slash contact for more info. Our newest sponsor is Geyser. They are the portal to the creator economy on Bitcoin. On Geyser, creators can monetize their work through their communities in a social and engaging way, and supporters can send sats to their favorite projects. Geyser has also recently integrated with Zaps and Podcasting 2.0, so every Zap sent to a Geyser address shows up on the Geyser page. We have a Geyser fund ourselves. It's the best way to support our show directly with Bitcoin. So whether you're a creator or a supporter, check out Geyser at geyser.fund today. And what would you say to the people who bash Blockstream for being like, for, for having co-opted Bitcoin into being this um, thing that it doesn't seem to be to me, but uh, th- th- there's been a lot. Blockstream has re- really uh, re- received a lot of flack from uh, various shitcoiners and uh, Shitcoin apologists. I think it is righteous and good for people to be suspicious of any significant influencer over Bitcoin. Like to the extent that there is any one agency or group or human that that acquires too much influence, that is a threat vector, and people should be suspicious of that. And I think it's appropriate for people to watch Blockstream with a with a careful eye. I also think that the evidence is pretty clear that Blockstream is not actually causing that problem that it's often accused of, right? Like we clearly aren't bending Bitcoin in any particularly problematic ways. We clearly are not profiting from any major change in Bitcoin. Like our business lines are not in tension with the Bitcoin goals. So 
I, I broadly think that critique is very weak when I hear it. I'm often like, ah, this, there's this conspiratorial impulse to be like, oh, what, what is Blockstream doing? It's, it's employing a bunch of Bitcoin engineers. Isn't that suspicious? But I've really never heard anybody point to a specific thing that Blockstream has done or championed or, or opposed and been like, this specific thing is a harm to Bitcoin. And I don't really think that's ever happened. And knowing the people at Blockstream, I think every single one of them would stick a dagger in Blockstream's heart if they thought that that was going to happen. Like even to right up to Adam would absolutely for sure choose Bitcoin over Blockstream every time. So like, I don't personally find that threat very compelling, but I do think it is appropriate for people not to take my word for it and for people to not assume that just because it's not a concern today, that it isn't a concern tomorrow. Like we should, the price of freedom is vigilance. And this is an example of vigilance that I am, I am comfortable with, even though I think it is currently scanning an empty horizon. Mad, don't trust verify. Uh, yeah. And people shouldn't yeah. trust us either, even though I also think we're trustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of summarizing it. Uh, yeah, I, and I think a lot of those people are just, you know, shitcoin proponents in disguise. Uh, it seems, to, there seem to be a, a, a subset of Bitcoiners who have received a, a bag of shitcoins under the table to, to uh, trash talk certain companies and certain I wouldn't be surprised uh, if that's true, but to be honest with you, like the nature of Twitter and of algorithms in our day and age is so rewarding to contentious views that like, I don't know that you even necessarily need a bribe to assume there's just going to be no, this natural no. incentive to have contrarian arguments just crop up in and of themselves. But I'm sure money's flowing around. I mean, one thing that we definitely know when we're trying to advance liquid is that often when we go and talk to businesses about using liquid or about supporting liquid in some way, often one of the first questions we get is like, how much will you pay us? And then we have to be like, that's not how this works. Like <laughs> what, what we're talking about is a public good that we all think we would benefit from working on together. Blockstream is not out here handing out, you know, grants the way that say like Tron is just going to wander around and be like, sure, man, I'll give you a big pile of Tron if you add a Tron pair to your exchange or whatever. So we have to do it on the merits instead of on the, I don't know, directly incentivizing it. That's one of the disadvantages of not having a native token. But the advantage of not having a native token is that we are extremely transparent in a regulatory sense. Like we don't have any fear about whether or not we have a secret equity because we don't have a token. And also I think a lot of the people who are worried about the incentive structure of these systems, who are worried about whether or not they're truly operating in a, in a environment that they can trust from a game theoretic perspective, I think it's much easier to solve for that and to make strong guarantees without this kind of like additional value capture tool in orbit in a, in some complicated and ambiguous relationship. To me, it reminds me a lot of the like the three body problem in physics. Like what we're trying to do in liquid is to say like one body is the user and the other body is Bitcoin. And those are the two gravitational forces. And then we're just trying to bridge those two. And all the other systems are saying like, well, we've got the user and we've got the, uh, you know, the base wealth. And then we've got this other token, which is intended to like capture and fuel and be a flywheel and incentivize early adopters. And it's like, I'm not saying that there can't be a solution with that. What I am saying is it's beyond my ken. And I think in order to really trust a system, you need to understand it, which means even if there is a hypothetical solution, it's not obvious to me that it will be practical because you still need it to be legible to the majority of participants in a way that I feel very good about the explanation of if you think Bitcoin is valuable, then liquid is useful. 
And you don't have to worry about whether there's some complicated relationship between a, a third token, you know? Yeah, great. Uh, and what do you call the total supply of liquid tokens? Do you call that liquidity? The total supply of liquid tokens? We usually talk about it as Bitcoin locked, I would say. You could call it liquidity, but it gets a little confusing because there's a lot of different potential meanings for liquidity on, on liquid. First of all, liquid itself. But then also you have liquid Bitcoin and you also have like uh, stable coins like Tether or Fuji Money. So you might very well be interested in the liquidity of a specific pair. But yeah, we, we usually talk about the total amount of Bitcoin locked. So you don't use the term liquidity in a pun sense? It's anywhere. very overloaded, so it's hard to do a good <laughs> pun because it's like 11 different meanings cramming together and they can't actually cohere. <laughs> all, right, all right. That's solid. Uh, oh, I like it. <laughs> all right. Uh, Luke, do you have any questions for Tyler on your mind? Sure. Well, maybe to take us in a, a slightly different direction, how did you find Bitcoin? In other words, what was your orange pill story and how did you get connected to Blockstream? Yeah, totally. Um, I, uh, in my grad school days, back oh so many moons ago, uh, I studied game theoretic artificial intelligence and mechanism design. Um, and so in many ways, as Bitcoin was being invented, I was in the process of studying the same academic field, like very much, I don't know, not like I'm this smart, but like I could hypothetically, if I had been much smarter, had those ideas. I was thinking in that same space, right? And in at the time, and still today, in most cases, game theory and mechanism design is very dismal science, right? It's mostly about proving nice things that you can't have. It's like all arrows, paradox and stuff like that. Like, sorry, this is why mathematically you can't have a system that does all the nice things at once. And so I got a little bummed about that. And I was like, well, I'm going to go work on something that might actually help the world. And so I went to go work uh, at Google and work on Chrome. Um, and so when I first heard about Bitcoin, it was at Google. And the person who was describing it to me didn't understand it. Right. They, they knew sort of surface level that it was a scarce digital token, but they didn't understand how it worked and they couldn't explain it to me in any meaningful sense. And so I, having the academic credentials that I had, confidently told them that was impossible and laughed in their face and then didn't think about it again for another couple of years until uh, Silk Road and Mount Gox died in like a six month range. And to me, I was like, ah, okay. The major use case, buying drugs, and the major liquidity point, Mt. Gox, have both died simultaneously. Clearly, the bubble is over. Bitcoin will die, blah, blah, blah. And it didn't die. And that didn't match my worldview. I was like, I had a worldview. It, it cohered. It, it allowed for a bubble. But then it didn't allow for surviving a major setback. And... So that was when I went and actually read the white paper for myself, which was shortly after the fall of Mt. Gox, because I was like, there's something here that I don't understand. I wonder what it is. And the white paper, of course, is only eight pages long. I clearly should have read it earlier. It very much does lay out the idea in intelligible ways. And as soon as I read it, I was like, <laughs> probably like orange clouds of smoke, but out of my ears, right? Like, uh, and from that point on, I was, I was completely orange pilled. And it sort of slowly snowballed into like a thing that I liked a lot, into a thing I talked about a lot, into a thing I would like do during meetings when they were boring, into like I actually ended up doing a, a Bitcoin dedicated newsletter for about two years before I joined Blockstream. So like it went from this tiny little seed to this great pearl that was occupying my brain uh, very steadily, very consistently. And it, and it emerges from this place of I thought Bitcoin was impossible 
I thought that doing something like Bitcoin would be beautiful, but also that it was impossible. And then later someone was like, haha, perpetual motion machines are real. Like, check this out. And ever since then, I've just been like a little kid who's excited that magic is real and you can totally do spells. <laughs> so that's how I found myself in, in the Bitcoin space. Um, Blockstream specifically, my boss, uh, Jeff, who's the CPO, uh, the chief product officer at Blockstream, uh, he and I worked together at Google for many years. So we didn't actually work on the same teams, but we both worked on the product manager hiring committee. So we would meet once a month and we would discuss candidates for product management at Google. And we would have all these like really interesting discussions about product management theory and like what it means to be a PM and all that stuff. And so I knew we had a really good working relationship and that we saw eye to eye. And he basically called me up and was like, hey, would you like to come work at Blockstream? You seem really into Bitcoin. It's like, yes, <laughs> I, would, I would indeed like that thing. Thank you. So if you have, if you, the listener, if you have ATIQ and uh, uh, you've got a degree in uh, game theory for AIs and you worked at Google for 10 years, you might have a shot at getting a job at Blockstream. Is that, that's what I'm taking away. <laughs> that's from. the path I took. I don't know if it's the only path, but it works. So <laughs> Fantastic. Now you actually, you actually touch on a couple of interesting things here. Like I, I still have a, a day job myself, not connected to Bitcoin yet. I'm sort of working on making this whole thing a, a day job, but we'll see. But the the, the main thing is, I, I think there is still a big value in in uh, harnessing the lessons of the business world because corporations and people in the business world do a lot of things right in in my view this might be the most controversial thing i've said on the show um, yeah but but, but corporations sometimes well but but i don't mean corporations as entities I, I mean people who are operating in in a in a company that is actually performing well they learn how to do things efficiently and to to uh innovate and and advance and uh, when all the incentives are, are working right and this sort of thing and and, and blockstream i mean it sounds like there's a lot of really, really good experience there and uh, experience in working in the business world and running a business and all this. And so, uh, I, I mean, the, the Bitcoin community, I'm, I, I am getting to a point, the Bitcoin community does have uh, a whole lot of this uh, throw everything away attitude, uh, you know, go out and live in your self-sufficient cabin without electricity and we're going to can, we're going to send our transactions via ham radio kind of thing and and, and all of this is going to work but um that attitude at the far extreme but but how how do you see us bringing um the the lessons of the so-called fiat world into bitcoin totally totally i think you know without without sounding too glib that i think uh, there's a lot that both of those audiences could learn from each other like it, both both of those groups have a bit of a tendency to assume that they are at the top of the mountain and that the other group is foolish and still at the beginning of their journey. And they're both right and they're both wrong, right? Like the way that I would think of it is most of the people who are really deep in Bitcoin today and both people who are building stuff full-time professionally and people who are like sufficiently orange-pilled that it's like a big part of, of how they're arranging their free time and energy are fundamentally not representative of, of a typical person, right? Like the people who are like that, there's something that brought them to Bitcoin. 
And, you know, in some cases that's about having like a really strong, uh, sovereignty streak. In some cases that's, you know, I don't know, man, maybe they had like a crime background and they like needed it for a practical sense, or maybe they're like a political dissident or whatever. There's reasons that people find themselves to Bitcoin today, where it's still a very small minority of the population. And that group of people, even though they have insight into the future, they are seeing a real thing that really will propagate out. I think a lot of them assume that the future is going to look like that tiny little isolated population today. I don't think that's true. I think it's true that that population is seeing the future, but I don't think the future is going to look like that population just times the size of humanity. Like that population is going to continue to be unusual in all the ways it was unusual before. And the reason that I emphasize that is because I think many Bitcoiners vision of the, the hyper Bitcoinized future is that everyone is that sovereign personality type, right? That everyone buries their gold in the woods. And that's just not how most people will operate. What I think of as, and what I wish more people who were passionate about Bitcoin thought of as, is rather than converting normies into Bitcoiners, I want us to think about building tools that embody the Bitcoin philosophy, but are usable by normal people. And that won't be by teaching normal people to rearrange their value structure to become Bitcoiners. Like the set of people who value this stuff so highly that they're dedicating their life to it in a meaningful way, they will always be further down that curve. They'll always be taking more responsibility. They'll always have higher tolerance for friction. They'll always have more distaste for custodial arrangements. And that's fine. And instead of thinking of it as we're going to take everyone in the world and push them into this sort of philosophical camp, I instead want to say, let's take the best parts of this philosophical camp, the things that this camp is really understanding that can better the world and propagate them outward. We need to be like Prometheus bringing the fire down from the mountain, not trying to convince everyone else to climb up. And so I think of that as being a fundamentally different posture. So when I go and I talk to banks and corporations, I don't say to themselves, you guys should flee the financial system and burn it all to the ground and you know buy 50-50 gold rocks and Bitcoin and run off into the wilderness. They would laugh in my face and they'd be right to. Instead, what I say to them is, you should consider using a 3% allocation to Bitcoin in your corporate portfolio to dampen volatility to preserve your purchasing power better in times of high financial stress. And that statement is not radicalize your company, then adopt Bitcoin. It is adopt Bitcoin, but I think eventually it will radicalize your company, right? <laughs> and I think that's a way more effective way to advance the cause of Bitcoin, to grow the total sphere of people who are engaged with Bitcoin. Rather than thinking of it as changing people, we should think of it as building tools to fit the people where they are. And I do think we can do that. Yeah, a 3% allocation, though. Uh for any entity trends towards a hundred percent allocation over time since all fiat goes to zero and bitcoin goes to everything divided by 21 million as we all know well and i would take a different tack when talking to someone who's orange pilled but when i'm talking to a banker and i'm talking about someone who's skeptical they don't assume that bitcoin's going to infinity if they assumed that they'd already own some right they assume bitcoin's going to zero but the argument that i make to them and it is mathematically defensible is that even if you assume Bitcoin is going down in value, even if you assume all of the upside has already been achieved and it's nothing but downhill from here, the volatility skew of Bitcoin is still sufficiently useful that it should be a component part of your portfolio without you needing to be bullish about Bitcoin. And this is a great example of the difference between convincing someone that Bitcoin can be valuable to them versus convincing them to be a Bitcoiner. I don't think it's very easy to convince a banker 
that Bitcoin is going to 10,000x from here. Most bankers thought Bitcoin was a joke, and they now think of it as being a suspicious threat. They're not ready to believe that it's their golden ticket. But I can absolutely speak to them about the nature of using volatility to dampen an overall portfolio without having any particular confidence in that asset in isolation. And that's a language they understand. And then at the end of it, they own some Bitcoin. And you know the way that they expect to own Bitcoin is that they expect to rebalance every quarter, and they expect to keep their stake low. But man, if every single quarter they're selling off some of their Bitcoin, and then they're thinking to themselves like, man, wouldn't it be nice if we kept some of these profits? Like, I do think it becomes a route by which they become more comfortable and then more optimistic and then end up allocating a larger percentage of their portfolio, which in microcosm is, I think, what a lot of people do, right? They like buy a small amount of Bitcoin, it goes up, that makes them feel more comfortable, that actually causes them to add more to their stack, even though their stack is a larger share, because their comfort with Bitcoin has grown in proportion to their stack. That same thing can happen with companies, but it won't happen if we make adoption or if we make a prerequisite of adoption becoming a, a sort of fully orange pill sovereign, like I'm going to, I'm going to withdraw all my wealth from the system because it's all doomed kind of perspective. The carnivore and shotgun owner with a pickup truck in the middle of nowhere, that type of deal. There's like a lot of stuff <laughs> that's associated with that view of Bitcoin that you don't necessarily need to sign off on in order to get value out of Bitcoin. And I think our job as as people who want to advance Bitcoin is to bring Bitcoin in a form factor that will fit with people's lives rather than ask people to adapt their lives to fit with the form factor of Bitcoin. That will get further faster by trying to build tools that meet people where they are than we will by trying to proselytize the philosophy that brought us to Bitcoin. Yeah, that's that's usually the right approach to anything, like uh, adapt to the reality around you instead of trying to change uh, reality to your will. I mean, that that's that's a deep philosophical insight that I, I think most people would benefit from having. Like, it's better to sail with the wind than to try to sail against it, even though sailing against it is fun sometimes. But uh, this is another place where, like, my experience with Chrome was really helpful for me because one of the things about people who work their whole lives on browsers is that they care a lot about browsers. They care a great deal about the details of what a browser is doing. Most people just want to go to Facebook, right? So if you ask a Chrome engineer, should we have a setting that lets users choose A or B? The Chrome engineer will say, of course, because A and B are different and people should care because I care. But actually the majority of users do not want to think about A versus B. They really just want it to be a sensible choice so that they can get to Facebook. And it is a complicated and difficult thing to build a browser because you really do bear the responsibility for making those defaults sensible. Because if you just surface every single question that you might hypothetically want to ask, you will drive more users away than you will serve. And that is because browser users and browser builders don't have the same worldview. And the same thing is true for people who build Bitcoin tools and people who use Bitcoin tools. The people who, who build Bitcoin tools care more about self-sovereignty than the people who use Bitcoin tools. By definition, they're dedicating themselves to it, right? It's like a, it's a higher order value for them. So they're going to always think of it as being more urgent than the broader user base will be. And then in turn, the set of users who are currently using Bitcoin are going to think of that as more urgent than the set of users who haven't bothered to adopt Bitcoin yet. So there's going to be this like spread of how how much do you value versus how much do you value sovereignty versus convenience or any of the other trade-offs you might hypothetically imagine against sovereignty. 
And we are just on the end of that spectrum. And rather than thinking that we're going to drag all the other people to our end of the spectrum, we should instead think on this end of the spectrum, we have understood something important, something powerful and valuable. How can we, how can we proselytize that thing outwards rather than drag everyone towards us? This is true for so much more than just browser developers and Bitcoin nerds, though, because uh, like it's applicable to anything like uh, graphical interfaces on computers begun with that thought that maybe people don't want to, you know, uh, sit and do slash this and slash that commands all day. Yeah, in some ways, Bitcoin is like the ultimate HCI problem, right? It's like human-computer interface for your actual value. That's like the highest stakes HCI problem there is. Absolutely. And so hyper-Bitcoinization, in your mind, what, what does that mean? And is it real? And how does that play out? Like, and is there an end point to it? Like, what is hyper-Bitcoinization? Is it subjective? I think of hyper-Bitcoinization as roughly synonymous with everyone in the world thinks Bitcoin is valuable. So, you know, those, those TikToks where people walk up to like drunk people in Vegas and they're like, would you rather have a hundred dollars or a Bitcoin? And the drunk people are like, hundred dollars, yeah! Like in a hyper-Bitcoinized world, everyone will understand Bitcoin in the way that everyone understands dollars. That's what hyper-Bitcoinization means to me is that Money is money and people are happy to take it. What what the route we take to get there is, I think, complicated and interesting. I personally am watching the horizon for the first nation state to put a significant part of their wealth behind Bitcoin. And by that, I don't mean just, I mean, I'm not trying to be diminutive about the stuff the nation states have done so far. It's really awesome. Like the fact that El Salvador has done the legal tender thing, the fact that Bhutan is doing mining, these are all really good developments. I'm, I'm in favor of them. But what I'm watching the horizon for is the first central bank or the first national government to say, you know, X percent of our reserves are stored in Bitcoin. Um, I believe personally that's already happening, but just in a clandestine way. I believe that there are organizations, power entities in the world that are in the process of accumulating and that at some point the secret accumulation phase will be over and the flexing how much you have as a form of, of you know, demonstrating wealth and power will begin. Uh, and that to me is, that's the moment of hyper-Bitcoinization is when people stop trying to accumulate secretly and start using how much they have to influence the world. And people, I mean, I mean like the big nation states, the, the power players. This is something I think about a lot because I, I, I think we inevitably that, that thought runs into a, a very uh, particular di- dilemma. I mean, uh, the, the, the deeper question is, can corporations and countries really own Bitcoin? Because owning a Bitcoin is just keeping a secret. And uh, th- so, of course, they can have someone custody the Bitcoins for them, but then not your keys, not your coins. So it's not really the, and I don't see, you know, governments doing a 175 out of 351 multisig or 349 multisig. I don't see that happening in most corporations either. So, uh, so they will be forced to use custodial solutions, which means that they don't really possess the Bitcoin. They don't really know the secret. They don't really possess the keys. It means some guy owns the Bitcoin and some guy can just fuck off and buy an island somewhere and live his life the way he wishes without, without never talking to these people again. You could make all the same descriptions of physical gold, right? Like a, a 
company or a government is not what what a government or a company that's trying to custody gold is going to do is they're going to pay people to guard the gold right but the actual control of the gold will ultimately boil down to human entities which are not literally the government or the company well the government has a, a military force to to uh, to attack these people with if they were to ever try to run away with the gold running away with a bitcoin is way easier because you can just memorize 12 words and go wherever you want with them so I agree so, with you that it is easier to steal Bitcoin than it is to steal gold. But I don't agree with you that there is a philosophical difference between what it means for a company to own gold and what it means for a company to own Bitcoin. In both cases, the company's ownership is a combination of the economic incentives it gave employees and the legal protections it inherits from its jurisdiction. Whether there's gold or Bitcoin that's yeah, being but protected. Okay, 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 let me be clearer. Because this is not about ownership. Because ownership is always a legal contract between two people. So ownership uh, means that someone can force like so, but this is of uh, this is possession, and in the case of possession, because that's where I see the difference. Uh, you, the difference, uh, I mean, I I can own gold, but you can hold it for me, and then you possess the gold, but I still own it, and you can choose not to give it back, and then I can send a military force towards. But but Bitcoin is a different thing because different isn't even possessing something. It's just keeping a secret, uh, which makes the whole game theory uh, and the whole shelling point of violence, if you will, completely different. Because I can say, no, you're not getting it back. You can shoot me, but then you'll never get it back. So I'll give you half. Or like th there's all sorts but of. We already have secrets that have this property, right? Like there are individual humans that know how to build nuclear bombs, and that that information, in some sense, belongs to the government and is protected by the government, and has some of these same qualities of like you need to be able to protect that information from a potentially rogue agent. The the need to secure and preserve data exists pre Bitcoin. This is not a new thing. It's just a nature of what data you're preserving and protecting. The data itself has always been. Uh, valuable indirectly before, but in Bitcoin, the the information is the value. Like, is the value? I would thing. actually argue it is still an indirect value in the same way. You know the Coke formula; it allows you to produce Coke. You know the secret key; it allows you to produce transactions. It's it, there, there exists secret information that must be preserved and protected, and that is a difficult thing to do. And it will become more important as more important information propagates and as more information becomes more valuable. We are doing a great job of it today and we will change a lot. But fundamentally, the legal structures and the corporate strategies for preserving secret data exist already today. Yeah, I know, but 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 still I, I see this like running away with a nuclear bomb blueprint is in my mind a different thing than just uh no I mean you can still Say the uh, just the simplest example, there is no multisig going on. Uh, then the custodian has the private key and he can take the 12 words and still let the government have the 12 words as well. But two people can own Bitcoin. This is, this is a new thing. Like, uh, this is the only, the, the first real intellectual property that is actually in your head. Like the, the there's to me there's I, I'm not a sure difference. I agree, right? Like the thirteen spices for KFC is perfectly memorizable and is also a secret and you know what I mean? Like the idea of there being IP that is high sensitivity, high value, and also memorizable by an individual human, it's not it's not wholly unprecedented. This is in fact a thing no. that has happened before. 
Yeah, but okay. So just let me steal man the argument a bit more. Uh, uh, say you you work for a government, you custody their Bitcoin. Uh, this is, uh, and uh, you get uh, paid a certain amount per month to be doing that. But the value of those Bitcoins that you custody go up to such uh, a high value that so it makes no sense for you to just keep your uh, day job. It makes much more sense to you to take some of it and just run off. Like, there, there, there's lots of these... Uh, in my view, new game theoretical things that that could play out, especially if you consider that killing a person kills that person's Bitcoin too, if the only place that those Bitcoins uh, exist in is in that person's head. And that goes for, like, if you write a poem with a seed phrase in it, and you're the only one who knows where this poem resides, that's the same thing. It's still just keeping a secret. And in all probability, if you kill this actor who has this secret, you destroy the value of those Bitcoins. So the incentive to attack someone. I think the reason that this feels so unprecedented is because no one would store important data in a one of one unreplicated storage system, right? So, like for any data that really mattered to a company or to a government, they wouldn't tolerate the risk that it existed only and specifically in one person's head, or at least they would try and get rid of that risk as soon as possible, right? Like key man risk is well understood in general. I, I think it is true that it would be very foolish to give someone a private key and then say, hey, store my Bitcoin for me. I trust you. On the other hand, my mom does that with me and she's fine. Like, So there are systems where that trust relationship might be larger than the economic risk you're taking. But I, I don't think that's important necessarily. What's, what's important to me is it is possible for a corporate or government entity to take on the task of securing secret information. In the case of a private key, what I would do and what I think most people will do will be a combination of multi-sigs. Like, I'd be really surprised if anybody was sizably storing any meaningful amount of Bitcoin without a very complicated interlocking set of time-locked multi-sigs that make it very hard for a, a unilateral actor to do anything. Yeah, but the, still, this is, this is something that probably the custodian will take care of and not the actual entity owning the Bitcoin. Because it, I, in my mind, at least, it's highly unlikely that the, the, the board of a central bank are technical enough to manage that. Like My intuition is that they won't understand the software, but that they will understand the configuration. So they will say something like, we will hire Blockstream to write us smart contracts that will cause you know, a two of three rescue with these keys and a five of seven normal operation with this key and a one of seven, but it has a six month delay from this, this set, you know, they'll specify what the governance options that they think are right for their business are. And then they will hire a professional to construct those rules in a covenant. And then the covenant will actually be some sort of like immensely complicated multi-sig that, that they don't necessarily have direct understanding of. That's what I would expect. And then I would also expect that the covenants that are the most common and popular become widely used open source examples in the same way that like the Delaware uh, Corporation is just now a very standardized piece of boilerplate that literally every company starts with, right? So you get that, that commonality of widely used systems becomes its own shelling point. That's a good answer. Uh, uh, and uh, on to the next question. Like uh, this is from some something that... Uh... Adam alluded to that that there are around a million addresses with around one coin in them now, and that's probably people DCAing. 
And that's like 0.5% of the entire supply that will ever be, which, which means, uh, so, so in, in your mind, how, how likely is it that we still have a chance at leapfrogging all of these great institutions that have all the money now by just DCAing over time and that more and more people would do that so we get the grassroots thing uh, sort of leapfrogging the, the, the dinosaur institutions of the world? The way that I characterize it to my friends that are asking this question of like, you know, is it over? Is it still coming? Right? Like what, what is, what is the future? Is that like, I think right now there are people who believe that this future is going to happen, right? That there's going to be a point where having a lot of Bitcoin will matter. And that many of those people are quietly hoping to delay that future as much as possible so that they can accumulate as much of a share as they can during this, this preparation phase. Us as small fry, we are not going to front run this hypothetical organization that I've described that's accumulating at like whale size, right? But the reason that this organization is secretly accumulating at whale size is because it believes other whales haven't started feeding yet. And you can still front run those other whales. So I think there are some real institutions that are already plugged in and are already starting to position themselves. And they're sufficiently wealthy that like if they're DC, you know, if Michael Saylor's DCing, DCAing in, like we're not going to buy at that scale. He's going to end up with more Bitcoin than us. But Michael Saylor is at this moment an unusual oddity among leaders of, of major businesses. There are many, many, many businesses of micro strategy size and larger that are not buying any Bitcoin. And those are the people that I think there's still plenty of time to front run. And I do think it is absolutely, if you believe that Bitcoin is going to reach this sort of moment of universal understanding and adoption, it is radically undervalued today. There is no world where it could be a universally valuable thing and still be $27,000 of Bitcoin, right? That just doesn't make sense. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to believe that there's still lots of opportunity for people to front run. There is a thing that people often talk about when they talk about front running, where they shift from the personal. Can yeah, I front, buy before? Front running is a, a better word than leapfrogging. That was the word I was looking for. Go yeah. on. And there's, there's this sort of sense where we start with the personal. I can buy before a lot of other people and therefore my price will be lower than a lot of other people will end up having to pay and that will benefit me. And then they leap to the sociological. Me and all of my friends will have front run all of these institutions and thus the overall distribution of wealth will have shifted in this radically sort of reinforcing our philosophy way, right? Like all the people who think like me will suddenly be the new captains of industry. And like, I'm a little suspicious of that. I'm suspicious of that for a number of reasons. One reason is that I think a lot of the institutions are already here and I think they have enough money to position themselves that like plebes will benefit, but I don't think they will take over the world. And then on the other hand, I also think, you know, we talk about this stuff in very binary ways, right? Like buy only and then save only and then one day a light will flash and all bitcoin will have become incredibly valuable and you'll spend but you'll spend such a small amount it'll feel like a rounding error so you'll never really spend right and in reality of course the the path from where we are to a hyper bitcoinized future will involve a lot of intermediate prices and a lot of life that happens during that time and some people will have mortgages and some people will have unexpected injuries and some people will have business opportunities and some people will just want to buy a fancy car and it, it, these these intermediate demands for things to spend on will smooth out the actual growth 
and the actual shift of wealth. It won't be this binary like goes from the banks and then plops onto the plebes. It'll be like a trickle that goes from the banks into the plebes. And then the plebes will also have a trickle that goes back into the main economy. And what the rate of those trickles is, is like really complicated to understand. But from my perspective, I think a lot of people are not properly accounting for the intermediate phase where hyper-Bitcoinization hyper is happening, but has not yet happened. We might even be in that phase right now. If my theory about a nation state quietly accumulating behind the scenes is true, then I would argue that hyper-Bitcoinization is happening and it's just not visible yet. But I don't know. It's no way to know if that's true, right? Well, I definitely think it's happening and uh, it's hard to tell what stage we're in. That, like, the thing that, that would counter your argument is, is these exact same Glassnode data that Adam talked about because uh, we can see that... Um, Wallets with ad with more than uh, ten thousand bitcoins or more are are shrinking in numbers, and addresses with one bitcoin or less are growing in numbers. So it's it's like this redistribution of wealth, if you will. Uh, it's doing ex what the socialists say they're doing by doing the exact I opposite. Really, I really, I am super skeptical of all the analyses that try and create a one to one between addresses and a thing that I believe is a single individual user who gets deeper into Bitcoin puts more of their wealth in it, starts doing more interesting things with it, starts experimenting with wider ranges to use it, is going to create an increasing number of addresses. And not just in the sense that they'll leave behind addresses that they touched, but then they're not using anymore, in the sense that they will have a more active, more diverse, more complicated personal portfolio. So what I see when I see that distribution of increasing addresses is I see increasing complexity of the economic meaning of Bitcoin right? Like I have an address that I use for cold storage and an address that I use for hot wallet stuff. And then an address that I use for my lightning network stuff that is not fake, but it's also not a, a three people, right? It's one person who's gotten deeper into the system and has, has increased their economic surface area. And so when I look at the shift of 10,000 coin uh, addresses to addresses that have one coin, one possible explanation is a democratization of holdings. You know, a rich person sold and now 10,000 uh, less rich people hold. And that's awesome. And I think it's happening. But another thing that is definitely happening is that the people who have 10,000 Bitcoin do stuff with it. And that stuff might or might not be selling. It might be invested or it might be put it into different storage so that you don't have all your eggs in one basket. Or it might be move it around because you're trying a new script because you're a crazy Bitcoiner. And the reason you have 10,000 Bitcoin is because you were mining in 2009. And like, I obviously all of this is a bit arbitrary just to make it clear what the trade-offs are. But like the reason I'm so suspicious of trying to infer population dynamics from address dynamics is because I actually think usage changes are the larger contributor to that number rather than humans adopting it. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's something to take into consideration when looking at those numbers, absolutely. So would you agree with the statement that if every, uh, like there are hodlers of last resort, right? That refuse to sell at any price. And then there are almost hodlers of last resort that would only sell in an emergency. And then there, there are people who want the Lambo and people who want a coffee after Bitcoin has a thousand X. So, so there's a, there's a spectrum, uh, just as you said. But would you agree with the statement that if every DCAing Bitcoin or if every active Bitcoin pleb or plebe, uh, depending on the pronunciations, um, 
just made sure that they had one Satoshi more every year, that's what would actually redistribute wealth. Like that's, that's what everyone should aim for. If everyone aims for one more Satoshi a year, that ensures the, the other, the other things. I would certainly recommend to any individual person, be they a plebe or a no coiner, that they should over time be increasing their stack of Bitcoin. I think having a goal of ending each year with more Bitcoin than you started with is noble and good. And I would universally recommend it to everyone. I don't necessarily think I'm as confident in the sort of sociological claim of like, if everybody did this, then it would be transformative. Um, there's like a bunch of ways in which I feel complicated about that. But the simplest one is, I think we are better off bringing the economy into Bitcoin than we are having a mercantilist squabble over the pile of coins. Like, I think Bitcoin is a much superior system for the economy to operate on. So I think when the economy moves in, we will all be wealthier. But I don't necessarily, the reason that I'm motivated by it isn't because I'm hoping to capture a larger share in a, in a P2P sense. The reason I'm interested in it is because I believe the economy built on fair rails will grow so much larger that we will all be better off. And the, the fact that also the early buyers will be especially better off is like, it's exciting, but it's not, it's not the thing that wakes me up in the morning. It's not the thing that I actually think will transform the world. And I think a lot of people have a belief that the, the lever of change that Bitcoin will achieve is like enriching their friends. Like me and people who think like me will get rich faster and therefore the world will be better because we'll be the new power structure and we're better than the old power structure. And I don't think that way. I dislike power structures, not the people in them. So the thing that I'm excited about with Bitcoin is that it will actually allow for a system where there is nobody empowered at that central control station and that that will allow everyone to be better off. And the specific fact that you can buy shares early and they'll appreciate in value is like, cool conceptually and also nice for my portfolio, but it's not the social tool that excites me. That's not the thing that I'm hoping to put my ding on the world with, you know? No, beautifully put. Um, that's sort of the answer I was hoping for, because like the, the uh, to me, hyper-Bitcoinization is not when people start spending their Bitcoin or when people start accumulating. It's when, it's when you start accepting Bitcoin for everything you do. Like that's, that's the real transformative phase when you, when you start to actually live it and uh, start charging people in Bitcoin. If you want my time, you need to give me Bitcoin because it's the only equiv true equivalent of human time we have. Like it's, it's the only thing that's incorruptible. Uh, Luke, do you have any final questions for Tyler? Because I think we're at the point of wrapping up. Yeah, I, th I think I think we're nearing that point. Uh, I think this has been great, uh, Tyler. I think I think you kind of poked a few holes in, in some of Knut's uh, pet theories about ownership versus possession. So that's, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. That's Every awesome. good conversation should have you leaving going, hmm. No, no, I love it. I love it. And I love playing the devil's advocate with all sorts of other things as well. Uh, I mean, that's how you get closer to the truth. You, you talk to one another. Totally. Totally. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Wonderful. And I think on that note, can you tell our listeners and viewers where they can find what you are working on, uh, what's coming up in the future, that sort of thing? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can find me on Twitter at KnifeFight. Um, if you're more interested in Blockstream generally, the Blockstream Twitter account is, I think, probably the easiest place to get an overview of all the various things that are happening. I will say, without any spoilers, that I'm very excited about what we're going to be announcing at BTC Amsterdam. Um, so make sure to uh, dial into uh, Christian Decker's uh, keynote for that and, and stay tuned. But uh, will, will you be there? on the details. I won't be there, uh, but we will be sending people there from uh, Blockstream uh, to to do some exciting announcements. So stay tuned. Looking forward to meeting them and looking forward to the announcement. All right, Tyler, thank you so much for doing this and good luck with everything at Blockstream and everything else going on in your life. This uh, This was a great conversation, I think. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Let's do it again sometime. Likewise, let's do it. Yeah, thanks again, Tyler. So what did you think of that episode with Tyler? I enjoyed how he pushed back on some of Knut's ideas about possession and ownership. Definitely some food for thought there. What was your favorite moment? Let us know. You can send us a boostagram on Fountain, leave us a comment on YouTube, or get in touch on Nostra or Twitter. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode and subscribe to the channel. Our show's sponsors are Amber App, Wasabi Wallet, Orange Pill App, The Bitcoin Way, and Geyser. Check out their details in the description. That's all for now. See you next time and thanks for listening.